Okay. Oh, my goodness. Such a professional. <laughs> All right. Okay. I think I'm good. Let's fix the hair. Okay. Okay, let's get started. You guys ready? All right. We are in John chapters 7 and 8 this morning. And I am going to, uh, 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 I'm missing two pieces of paper. I'll be right back. Okay, make sure you have your listening guide in front of you. We'll be following along. Let's see, yours is just one page. It looks like this. All right, let me open in a word of prayer, and then we will dig in. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for your word. And I thank you for just another beautiful um, picture of Jesus that we have in these these pages that we are going to look at today. Um, and I pray that you would just give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to respond. I know for many in this room, these, these passages are very familiar. And I just pray that you would give us fresh eyes to see um, just these profound words of Jesus fresh way, and to marvel um, with a, a greater sense of awe and um, depth of affection for Jesus than we maybe have had in some time. I pray that you would use this time together to um, teach us, to um, guide us, convict our hearts, and also to comfort and to encourage. I thank you that your word does all of those things. And we give this time to you and pray that you would stir our affections for our Savior, that we might live lives that glorify him and carry his blessing and joy and goodness and grace to the world around us. We love you so very much. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, I want to start out today, uh, we're just a few weeks in to our study. We haven't covered too much ground yet, uh, but I thought it would be good for us to go ahead and take a few minutes and review where we have been so far and kind of get an idea of um, where we are headed. So that's what the uh, first part of your listening guide is about a review of what we've covered so far. All right, now, the first thing I want to remind you of is the purpose of John. He is very clear. Uh, he does not hide from us the reason why he wrote his gospel. 
And we have that purpose statement in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. You can turn there or you can just listen. We went over this our first week together, but I think it's worth reminding ourselves. So John chapter 20, verse 30, John says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. So right there we're told this is a highly selective account of Jesus's life, all right? But, so we wonder, okay, well, why did John pick the signs he picked? Why did he pick the words he picked? This is why. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John is not trying to be an unbiased, neutral reporter of what occurred in the life of Christ. He has a very distinct purpose. It is to persuade us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah sent by God and to then have life in his name. So we need to be reading the entire gospel through that lens, all right? So we started out our very first week together working through the introduction to the gospel in John chapter 1. That's where we had the prologue, and I talked to you about how John in the prologue lays out all of the threads that he is going to weave throughout his gospel. And we've been seeing these. Believe is a big one. We'll see it again today. Um, we'll see a little mention of glory um, today. Light is going to be a big one in chapter 7 or chapter 8. Chapter 8. Um, the Trinity, or this is truth. Yeah, truth. Again, Jesus is going to mention, I, I am from the Father, and what I have is truth. And the Pharisees are going to be like, no, you're not the truth. And so you have all this controversy that's building. Um, we have the Trinity, right, the Trinitarian language, where Jesus is talking a lot about his relationship with the Father. There's also quite a bit um, of talk about the Spirit. All right, so we have that thread. The thread of life is, is being woven through. How do we have eternal life? What did Jesus come to bring? He came to bring life to the whole world. Um, we've seen a whole bunch of witnesses called to the stand to testify to the truth of who Jesus is. Um, we've had the conversation of being a child, being born from above, a child of God, that whole Nicodemus conversation that has continued to, to come through, grace, and then observing or seeing um, what Jesus has done. So those threads uh, all were laid out in the very first 18 verses of the gospel, and we've seen where John is weaving them through. Um, so hopefully you are still on the lookout for those. After the prologue, you have this narrative. We're introduced to John the Baptist, and then we're introduced to some of the disciples. And what's interesting is in from, chap from verse 19 on through the end of chapter 1, you actually have seven titles for Jesus that are, are thrown out just in the course of the conversation. He is the Lamb of God, the Son of God. He's Rabbi. He's the Son of Man. He's Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, King of Israel. So that's all just in the first chapter, right out the gate. So you get this impression that John is um, very, very, very highly focused. He wants to tell us what Jesus did, but more so he wants to communicate who Jesus is, all right? Um, and so that is what we get right in the first chapter. Now, you move on into chapters 2 through 4, 
And in that section, we have the words and works of Jesus that are connected with four significant Jewish settings or institutions. The first one, you have a wedding, Jesus at a wedding, and that's where he turns the water into wine. So you have saved the best for now. And that's just loaded with meaning, right? Jesus brings abundance, um, and he is the best that has been saved until now. And then you have Jesus at the temple. Remember, he turns the tables over, and, you know, obviously that makes them very, very upset. And they say, well, who do you think you are? Give us a sign that you have the right to do this. And he said, okay, we'll tear this temple down. I'll rebuild it in three days. And they're like, what? It took tons of years to build this temple. And he said, I'm talking about my body, my body. So he, when he's at the temple there in chapter 2, he's communicating that he is the new temple, right, which is huge, very significant um, statement that he makes there. So we have Jesus at a wedding, Jesus at a temple, and then we have Jesus with a rabbi, one of the um, main religious leaders, teachers of his day, whose name was Nicodemus. And that's where he talks to Nicodemus about being born from above, uh, being born of water and spirit. And if you're born of water and spirit, then you can experience the eternal life that um, Jesus gives. And it's not just eternal life for Israel. We are told in John 3.16 that the gift of God is eternal life for the entire world. Well, then that leads him to Samaria, which is representative of Jesus going out into the world to give this gift of salvation that God has brought through him. So then the final scene in this section takes place at Jacob's well, which is, a, again, a significant place in Jewish history. Um, he meets a Samaritan woman there. He offers her living water, and she goes off as a witness to who Jesus is. Many in the town believe, and so we have this beautiful, beautiful picture of Jesus as uh, giving the, the life-giving water. Now, one of the ways we know that this is intended to be one chunk, one section, is we have references to Cana of Galilee bookending this section. So you have one in 2, verse 1, and then Jesus is back in Cana of Galilee in 4, verse 46. So there's like this, this literary devices, these little clues that John's like, okay, that's one piece. Now we're moving on to another piece. Now, if you never noticed those clues, you would be fine. You could live your whole life never noticing those clues. Who cares? We move on. But I think it's really, really cool because I, as I'm starting to see these things more and more, I just am, I'm just more in awe of the pure genius behind the, the writing. Like the, the, the human authors, inspired, driven along by the Spirit, have crafted some of the most beautiful pieces of literature that we have in the world, in the universe. And they're just stunning. And you see these little clues that they put in there. I'm like, man... That is, that's neat. That's just neat. And I, I, I love that the Bible's really, really neat. It really is. All right, so we, we go from Cana to Cana, one section. Then you move into that third box, that, that, that third main section, is the words and works of Jesus connected not with four institutions, but now we're connected with four Jewish feasts. And I pointed this out to you last week. We looked at the references to the feast. So chapter 5 takes place at an unspecified festival 
But we are told that uh, Jesus healed the lame man on the Sabbath. So the Sabbath takes on a big significance there. Um, And then we move to the festival of Passover, right? And Jesus, you get this uh, wilderness motif. So Jesus crosses the sea. He goes up to a mountain. The people spread out on grass. We're a little bit in a remote location. You have all this Exodus imagery going on. Then you have Jesus feeding the 5,000. And the next day, he starts this whole bread of life discourse. We have the reference to the manna. And he makes it very, very clear that he is the true bread that has come down from heaven, not just to satisfy physical needs, but to satisfy the much deeper, more significant spiritual needs as well. Well, then we move on to where we are today. And the feast that our our passage is connected with today and also some of next week, what we'll cover, is this feast of tabernacles, also called the feast of shelters, also called the feast of booths, depending on what translation you have. But that's going to go from chapter 7 all the way through, like the middle of chapter 10. And then the final feast will be the, uh, the Feast of Dedication, which we more commonly know as Hanukkah. And that's just a few verses at the end of chapter 10, verses 22 through 42. That, those four feasts also form another section. And we have a literary bookend here as well. If you look at chapter 5, go ahead and look at it with me. Chapter 5, verse 2. So it's giving us Jesus' location. This was by the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem. There is a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic, which has five colonnades. Your translation might say porticos. All right? Now, look with me at the end of chapter 10, verse 23. Not all the way to the end, but almost there. 10:23. And again, this is just Nito, Nito Frito. So no, you don't need to know this. It's just cool, all right? All right, so 10:23 says Jesus was walking in the temple in Solomon's portico or colonnade, right? So he's like, ding, ding, ding. We're kind of closing this out here. Here's another bookend. We're about to end another section. So, um, yeah. So, again, it's just neat. Okay, so I have some bullet points there. So I'm kind of, uh, that first one there kind of summarizes where we've been so far. Jesus is making big claims about his identity, um, both as one who has been sent by the Father and also one who is one with the Father, right? We saw it right out the gate. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. We also saw at the end of the prologue where he says he is um, at the Father's side or in the Father's lap. We are also told he is one with the Father. So we, we have that major, major claim that Jesus is making, and that's ultimately what all the signs are pointing to. Here is a human being named Jesus of Nazareth who is not just a human being. He is divine. He is divine, and that that is the claim that he's making. Now, we're going to get to those other bullet points. I want to go ahead and start reading with you, though. Let's look at John chapter 7, verse 1. If you want to go ahead and turn there. John chapter 7, verse 1. 
Um, before I start reading, are there any questions about the outline, the structure, the flow of things so far? Those boxes we just walked through. Any questions? All right, chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus traveled in Galilee since he did not want to travel in Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. All right, we're going to see lots of references to that. They're going to become more and more numerous as the story goes on. The Jewish festival of shelters or tabernacles or booths, whatever translation you have, was near. So Jesus' brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples can see your works that you're doing. For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then we have this little comment. For not even his brothers believed in him. All right, so we get an indication there even that those, his own brothers are not judging things correctly. They don't, they don't get it. They don't have understanding of who Jesus is and what his purposes are. So verse 6, Jesus told them, my time has not yet arrived. And when Jesus starts talking about his time or his hour, what's he referring to? Do you guys remember? I think I heard it. The cross. Yeah, and that whole scene where he's going to go to the cross and that, all, all of that. So he's saying that's, it's not time for that yet. He says, but your time's always at hand. The world cannot hate you. But it does hate me because I testify about it that its works are evil. And essentially what he's saying there, and he's going to develop the whole light and darkness theme as this section continues. But darkness doesn't hate darkness. Darkness hates light. It hates to be exposed. And so he's saying, you can go ahead and go. Not going to be a problem. <laughs> but if I go, you know, they, they, they will hate me. Verse 8. So go up to the festival yourselves. I am not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. And after he had said these things, he stayed in Galilee. And you're like, okay, he's not going. And then you get to verse 10, and he's going. <laughs> okay? So after his brothers had gone up to the festival, then he also went up, not openly, but secretly. The Jews were looking for him at the festival and saying, where is he? All right, so is Jesus lying? What's he doing? What's going on? Well, this is a pattern we see in, in how Jesus interacts with people who tell him to do stuff. Remember back in John chapter 2, his sweet mama just wanted to fix the wine thing situation? And so she calls on her son to intervene and do something. And he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. But then he turns the water into wine, right? So he just, he inserts that language, and I am guessing he kind of delayed a little bit too, to distance himself from the request, to demonstrate that he is not in anyone's control. He's full authority of what he's doing. He is living and breathing and working according to his will, which is actually the Father's will. They're one and the same. So that's what's going on here. There's a distancing. You'll also see when we study chapter 11, he gets word that Lazarus, his friend, has died. And the text is almost the same language. He stayed. He stayed there. I think he stays like th three more days. 
And, and you're like, what is, what is that about? Well, again, Jesus is not doing any man, any human being's bidding. So when he's told, you should go up to the feast, he's not going to be like, oh, yeah, you're right. Or you should go heal Lazarus. Oh, sure, I'm going to go because you told me. No, no, he is in complete authority of his own life and his own agenda and his own choices. Um, and his will is, is one and the same with the Father's will. So that's why we have these, this language that he's distancing himself from, from the request. That's what's going on there. All right, so Jews are looking for him. Verse 12. There's a lot of murmuring about him among the crowd. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he's deceiving the people. Still, nobody was talking publicly about him for fear of the Jews. So you can see things are heating up, right? People are all different opinions about him. It's not a safe environment for people who would side with Jesus. Certainly not safe for Jesus himself. Verse 14, when the festival was already half over... All right, so Jesus has kind of been, you know, hiding out a little bit at this point. But then he, he steps out. He, he goes up to the temple, and he begins to teach. I'll tell you what, anytime I see references to Jesus teaching, I think, oh, to have been there. I mean, so, so many of you are kindred spirits with me when there's just like, there is nothing better than some good Bible teaching. Like, I just, oh, so good. I could just hours and hours and hours and hours. I cannot imagine sitting under the teaching of Jesus himself. You know, I love me some Tim Mackey with the Bible Project, and I love Tim Mackey because Tim Mackey knows the Hebrew Bible. Jesus knew the Hebrew Bible, and he knew it was all about him. And I can't even imagine the connections that he would make, and oh, so, so good. Um, and that's what they pick up on. They, they pick up on that. So he begins to teach, verse 15, then the Jews were amazed and said, how is this man so learned since he hasn't been trained? Now, in our day and age, it's kind of cool to be self-taught. You know, it happens all the time. It did not happen back then, especially not, like, anybody who would stand up and teach in the temple. <laughs> I mean, we're talking a lifetime of, of learning um, under, uh, under good, solid teaching of, of the rabbis. And Jesus answered them, here's why I'm so good. Here's why you're so amazed. My teaching isn't mine, but it is from the one who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own. So how can you know? How can you discern what Jesus is saying? Well, you have to have a predisposition to want to do the will of the Father. Verse 18, the one who speaks on his own seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Didn't Moses give you the law? And yet none of you keeps it. Why are you trying to kill me? <laughs> Look at their response, verse 20. You have a demon, the crowd responded. Who's trying to kill you? You're crazy. I performed one work, and you are amazed. And he's specifically referencing the healing of the lame man on the Sabbath. This is why, verse 22, Moses has given you circumcision. Not that it comes from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. 
So they had a provision. They had kind of a loophole. That's one of the very, very few things that could be done on the Sabbath. Verse 23, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses won't be broken, why are you angry at me? Because I made a man entirely well on the Sabbath. That was pretty good logic, right? And the next verse, verse 24, needs to be underlined or highlighted or circled. It is the interpretive key for almost everything Jesus says in this section. This is the reason why the Jews are so um, confused, infuriated, <laughs> unable to see and comprehend the words and works of Jesus for what they are. Verse 24, Jesus tells them, stop judging according to outward appearances. Rather, judge according to righteous judgment or right judgment or correct judgment. Right, So they are looking at appearances, they are looking at surface, they are looking at the letter of the law. And Jesus is saying, uh-uh, you, have to, you have to judge with right judgment. And that is um, really when you look at all the things he says to them in the, in the next chapters. And some of them are kind of weird. And essentially, that's what he is saying. You are judging on appearances, judge with right judgment. All right, So that's kind of our interpretive um, lens that we're getting at here. Um, controversy is building, right? Your third little bullet point there. We are seeing through numerous examples what John told us at the very beginning, that his own people did not receive him. Um, and then after we get done with this section that, that focuses on these feasts, we'll move into chapter 11, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And that's a really important transition chapter because that's going to heat things up so, so intense that that's like the, the straw that breaks the camel's back. We've got to arrest this guy. He's got to go, right? And so that's why you have Lazarus, you have the upper room discourse, and then we have the crucifixion, right? So we are, we're headed there. We have, things are intensifying. Pace is picking up. We are certainly heading toward the cross, all right, so that's kind of what's going on. That's the landscape. That's where we are. I want to talk to you a little bit before we go any further in our reading about the Feast of Tabernacles because there's a couple really cool things that I want you to see um, that are going to have significance for us as we continue on in um, Chapter 7 and Chapter 8. So Feast of Tabernacles, I'm at the bottom of your listening guide there. It was a week-long harvest festival, very joyous, very celebratory. Um, and it commemorated the deliverance from Egypt and the provision of God in the 40-year journey of the Israelites in the wilderness. So a lot of the stuff that takes place in Exodus and Numbers, that's what, what they're, they're celebrating. Um, if you want a, um, we'll go ahead and, I'll turn there. You don't have to. I'm going to turn to Leviticus 23. You can just listen if you'd like. But I want to read you straight from God's instructions regarding this feast. All right, so Leviticus 23, verse 41. We'll get there. All right. So he says, and he's giving them instructions. He says, you are to celebrate uh, this feast as a festival to the Lord seven days each year. This is a permanent statute throughout your generation. Celebrate it the seventh month. You are to live in shelters for seven days. So they build these tents, live in them for seven days. All the native-born of Israel must live in shelters so that your generations may know 
that I made the Israelites live in shelters. When I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. So originally, they'd move out of their homes, they'd move into these tents, and it was all to remind them of God's provision during that time. By the time of Jesus, they didn't move out of their homes and into the shelters, but they would, they would have a significant meal in the shelter each day, or they'd do something to commemorate these, the shelter tent um, experience. So that was kind of the, why it's called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Shelters. Um, one of, this is one of the three pilgrimage feasts, which means you would travel to Jerusalem, um, the Passover and the Feast of Pentecost are the other two. And this helps explain why the brothers and the whole conversation about, aren't you going to Jerusalem? Right? This was the kind of feast you would, you would go to Jerusalem, to the temple, um, to celebrate. Now I have on your listening guide, and this is where it, it, it gets significant and plays into our passage today. There were two rituals that were associated with the feast uh, during the time of Jesus. Both of these were in your homework, but I want to reiterate them here because it's really, really, really important. The first uh, has to do with water. All right, so on each of the seven days of the feast, the priest would draw water from the pool of Siloam, which was there near the temple. Uh, In a golden vessel, they would bring it to the temple, and there was like this, it was a really big deal, like a parade kind of thing, right? They would uh, pour it into uh, a bowl beside the altar, and then a tube would take the water from the bowl to the base of the altar. I read in one of my commentaries that the words of Isaiah 12.3 were likely sung during the procession and the ceremony. You will joyfully draw water from the springs of salvation. And of course, we know how many water passages there are in the Old Testament. So no doubt those, those passages would be sung and, and quoted, and it was like a whole, a whole celebration. And this would happen um, every day for seven days. And that, of course, was a throwback to God's provision of water in the wilderness. Um, there's actually a few water stories in the wilderness. One of them is in Exodus 17. You might be familiar with it. It's where Moses... Um, is told to take his staff and to strike the rock, and water gushes out, and it supplies water for the people. There's another time in Numbers where Moses is told to speak to the rock, and I think Moses is having a little bad day. He hit it twice, and it was like a bad, bad thing. But still, God provided water from the rock uh, for the people, and so that's what um, this whole ceremony would, would be looking back to. All right, so I want you to keep that image in your mind. Moses striking the rock, water pouring out, supplying nourishment and water and life to all of these people. I want you to keep that in your head because it's going to come into play later in just just a few minutes. All right? So that's the first um, ritual. Second ritual at the Feast of Tabernacles during the time of Jesus has to do with light. At the end of each festival day of the Feast of Tabernacles, priests would go down to a part of the temple where there were large golden candle holders with four gold bowls in their tops, and there are actually four ladders for each candlestick. So I don't want you thinking these little dinky things we put on our dining room table, like ladders to get up to the bowl where you could pour the the oil. So this is huge candlesticks. Um... And four young priests would climb the ladders, pour the oil into each bowl. They would light the candlesticks with wicks that they made from um, kind of worn out priestly garments. So those didn't go to goodwill. 
they went to these, this, this candle lighting um, ceremony, and it is said that there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that was not lit from this light. So huge, big candlesticks. And this, of course, would commemorate the light that God provided to guide and direct his people through their wilderness wanderings. There was a cloud by day, and there was fire by night. It would also point to the light of the Torah, God's law, that he gave to his people. And it would point to the light of God's salvation promised in Isaiah's prophecy. Those of you who are with me, as we trudge through Isaiah, I mean, this, he loved the metaphor of light. And would often talk about the light that God um, was going to send to the whole world through his servant that would come. All right? So, water ceremony, light ceremony. Any questions? I know that's like history. It might feel a little like school. I promise we're going to have our minds blown in just a minute. Any questions before we move on? You guys doing okay? Do we need a break? Do we need a stretch? We good? All right. Flip your listening guide over. And we're going to start reading. Look at chapter 7. We're going to pick up with verse 25. Some of the people in Jerusalem were saying... Isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Yet look, he's speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing to him. Can it be true that the authorities know that he's the Messiah? But we know where this man is coming from. When the Messiah comes, nobody's going to know where he's coming from. And notice throughout the narrative, these people are getting so hung up on where Jesus is from. Again, they're judging, back to verse 24, they're judging according to outward appearances, not with right judgment, right? And we have so many examples of that. Verse 28, as he was teaching in the temple, Jesus cried out, you know me and you know where I am from. Yet I have not come on my own, but the one who sent me is true. You don't know him. I know him because I am from him and he sent me. And you're like, thank you, Jesus. That really clears it up. <laughs> the way he speaks, I just, oh my goodness. But those who had ears to hear did, right? <laughs> Verse 30. Then they tried to seize him, yet no one laid a hand on him because he did some really cool ninja moves. No. Because his hour had not yet come. So what's going on there? There's divine shield of protection like they can't get to him if they wanted to and they want to verse 31 however many from the crowd believed in him and said when the messiah comes there's no way he could perform more signs than this man has done the pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things about him and so the chief priests and the pharisees sent servants to arrest him it's like oh my goodness this is spreading People are catching on. They're believing in him. We've got to take care of this guy. So this is the first indication we have in the gospel that people are actually being sent out to, to arrest Jesus. In verse 33, then Jesus said, I am only with you for a short time. Then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Now, for us and also for the original readers, believers, First century Christians who read John's gospel, what, what is Jesus talking about? 
his ascension, right? He is going to die, he is going to rise from the dead, and then he is going to ascend back to the Father. They don't know this, all right? So, in verse 35, the Jews said to one another, where does he intend to go that we won't find him? He doesn't intend to go to the Jewish people dispersed among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, does he? What is this remark he has made? You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. All right. All kinds of conflicting opinions about Jesus. You notice that? That's one feature of these passages we've, we've covered this week. It's just like some people think this, other people think this, other people think this. The Pharisees hate the guy, want to arrest him, but there's all these different opinions. Things are heating up with the Pharisees. Servants have been sent out to arrest him. And we have a beautiful example, this verse 35. John uses irony very, very well. And the... <laughs> And they say, he's not going to go and teach the Greeks, will he? (laughs) Which if you've read the book of Acts, you know, like, going to teach the Greeks is a pretty big deal, right? He is. The words of Jesus are going to be taken to the Greeks and the entire world. And so I think John is giving a little uh, shout out to uh, that early missionary movement there. All right, verse 37. You guys ready? On the last... And most important day of the festival. That would have been the eighth day. So there's the water ceremony for seven days. This is the eighth day. Jesus stands up and cries out. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. And then we have this little commentary here. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. All right. You have a whole box about this on page two of your listening guide because I just think it is way cool, and I'm not going to keep this to myself. Are you guys ready? Okay. So there are a couple translation options for verses, uh, specifically verse 38. The most common is the one that I have in my Bible. I have a CSV. You probably have it if you have an NIV, if you have a King James Version, if you have a New King James Version, if you have an NASB. You have this most common translation. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. Um, King James Version is a little bit more of a, a literal translation. It says, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Um, But in in that most common translation, the believer is the source and conduit of the life-giving water of the Spirit. So the water is in me, the water is in you, and it's constantly flowing. And we know that that is true. That is true. That is 100% consistent with what we know about the indwelling of God's Spirit and the work of God's Spirit. So that is why that translation is what we have in most of our Bibles, because it is true. Okay, it rings true. It's a, it's a good, solid translation. But the actual grammar of the original in the Greek is a little ambiguous. So there's an alternative translation um, that the New Living Translation picks up on. It lets the ambiguity remain. All right, so New Living Translation says, 
anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scripture declares rivers of living water will flow from his heart. So in that translation, his, it's ambiguous. It's not clear. So then you have to track down, where is that quotation? It says, as the scripture says, and then it's a quote. Rivers of living water will flow from his belly or from his heart. So where, where, where is that? So in, in, this, in this translation, this alternative, I have it written there for you. The believer drinks the water of the spirit from a source indicated in the scripture quotation. All right, so now what we do is we say, hmm, let's search the Old Testament for this quotation. And what does it refer to there? Well, if you search the Old Testament for that quotation, you are not going to find it word for word. It's not a word for word quotation. What it is, it is a thematic summary of various texts related to God's provision of water. All right? And I want to take you to some of those texts. Are you guys ready? All right, let's do it. Um, first one I want to take you to, and if you are um, not familiar with where the books of the Bible are and it takes you a long time to find the book, just listen. Just sit back and listen. You have them all written there. You can look them up later, so don't let that stress you out. I'm going to turn to Isaiah 55, one of my favorite chapters in Isaiah. It's so beautiful. All right, so Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the water. And you who have silver, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without silver and without cost. Skip down to verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found, call on him while he is near. So when the, um, the message goes out, come, all you who are thirsty, come and drink, where are we going to drink? We are going to the Lord, the Lord who uh, Jeremiah chapter 2 talks about it being a, a spring of life-giving water. So it's, it's referring to the Lord. All right, now Psalm 78, verse 15 Psalm 78, verse 15. Well, you guys are quiet. I forget some of you have, you got your digital Bible there. You don't have to turn any pages. It's a beautiful thing. Good time to be alive. All right, so Psalm 78, verse 15. This is reflecting on the deliverance, the Exodus deliverance, and, and God's provision in the wilderness. Verse 15, he split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink as abundant as the depth. He brought streams out of the stone and made water flow down like rivers. Skip down to verse 20 or verse 19. Uh, they spoke against God, saying, Is God able to provide food in the wilderness? Look, he struck the rock and water gushed out. Torrents overflowed. But can he also provide bread to furnish meat for his people? And of course the answer is yes. All right, Psalm 105, 41. Again, this one's also reflecting on the Exodus events. He opened a rock 
and water gushed out. It flowed like a stream in the desert. All right, and then one more. Go back to Isaiah, chapter 48, verse 21. Again, reflecting on the Exodus. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow from the rock for them. He split the rock. And the water gushed out. And if you are someone who reads and rereads the Psalms, you know how many times God refers, or David refers to God as the rock of his salvation. Certainly an allusion to the rock of provision of water in the wilderness. I have some other passages written there. We're not going to read them. Ezekiel 47, we looked at that a couple weeks ago. It's where the the vision of the temple, where water is just gushing out of the foundation of the temple. Um, And then Exodus 17 and Numbers 20 are the actual accounts of the rock being struck and pouring water out. All right. Now I want you to turn to John chapter 19, verse 34. Or I have it written there for you. I think it's way cooler to see it in your actual Bible. All right. John 19, verse 34. Jesus is dead. He has been crucified. It says, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out or gushed out. All right. So let's put all this together. Here's the question. Is John presenting Jesus as the ultimate rock of divine provision that when struck through his death on the cross, pours out the life-giving spirit to all who would come to him and drink? The Greek is ambiguous. We don't know, but it sure is a beautiful image for us to have in our minds as we pray to Jesus and as we ponder Jesus, as we sing to Jesus, to have this image of him being the rock that was struck and the water flows life to those of us who come to him for satisfaction. And all the things he did. It's, it's, isn't that beautiful? It's just so cool. And we can't be dogmatic about it. We don't know. The translation we have is a perfectly good translation. But stuff like that just like gets me so excited. And I think this is it's very consistent with the picture John um, paints throughout. We also have, I came across a verse, um, even this morning, 2 Corinthians 10.4. Paul says, our ancestors drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was the Messiah. So so there is a tradition of linking Jesus with the rock from which the Israelites drank. So anyway, there you go. There it is. Super fun. Love it. All right, moving on. Oh, and that's why I told you these festival rituals are significant. Jesus is playing off that water ritual. He's standing in the temple on the day where there wasn't a water ritual, the final day of the feast, and he's like, I am the water. I'm, I'm the source. 
So cool. So cool. All right, so John chapter 7, back to John chapter 7, and let's keep reading. All right, I got to see what time it is. Okay. Wow. All right, let's get to, let's get to the other important, important part. I am going to skip. There's more confusion. There's more division about Jesus. And then we have this um, story of the adulterous woman um, who is going to be stoned. And Jesus writes in the sand. Everybody drops their stones. And he says, I do not condemn you either. Beautiful story. It is not original to the Gospel of John. It was added later. It rings true. It's consistent with other stories we have um, of Jesus but it does not belong here, all right? And it actually breaks up the flow. So we're supposed to have Jesus talk about the water, and then he has some more words, and then we go right into the light, all right? So we're going to pick up at chapter 8, verse 12. Um, you can read more about the, the adulterous woman scene in the homework material, if you'd like. All right, I want to make sure I'm picking up at the right place. All right, chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus spoke to them again. I am the light of the world. And remember, he would have been saying this, the Feast of Tabernacles. He could very well have been saying it as the light from those golden candlesticks is reflecting all over the place. And he stands up and says, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So not only is Jesus the true walk from which the water of God's life-giving spirit flows, he is also the true pillar of cloud by day and fire by night that leads God's people through the wilderness to the promised land, except he's not just the light for Israel this time. Who is this light for? It's for the whole world. It's for the whole world. I'm running out of time, so I'm having to figure out what I'm putting in here. Okay. Let's do this one. Isaiah 49.6. Listen or turn there. Because he's riffing off of this as well. Isaiah 49.6 says this. God is talking to his chosen servant. And he says, It is not enough for you to be my servant, raising the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations, so that my salvation can go to the ends of the earth. I mean, come on. And Jesus is like, I'm the light of the world. Basically quoting Isaiah. He's like, there in the temple, next to these giant candlesticks. I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. All right. This very lengthy dialogue goes on. And what we see in that, we're not going to read all of that, but what you see is more and more and more confusion, more confusion. There's lots of differing opinions. Um, let's see, let's look at verse 30. As Jesus was saying these things, many believed in him. So that's a moment where if you're like me, you're like, yay, yay. They be they're believing. That's a good thing, right? And then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, then, and we don't have, we're not going to read all of it, but then the conversation takes a really weird turn. And they're like, what do you mean set us free? We're not slaves. And, and he talks about, well, 
you are a slave to sin, and um, there is a sin that leads to death, and it is the sin of unbelief. And then they get into this conversation about who's your daddy, right? Like, we're Abraham's descendants. And Jesus says, you know what? It's not enough to just be the same blood. You need to have the same behavior. Like, there's nothing about you that's like Abraham. You don't have the faith of Abraham. You are acting like your father, who is Satan. I mean, you guys, like... (laughs) So you, you, have, you have many believed in him, and then he goes on to look those believers in the face and say, you're going to die in your sin of unbelief, and your father is the devil. And I think if there's any part of this week's passage, there's so many claims that Jesus makes. I mean, oh my goodness, at the end, they have all this talk about Abraham, and he says, listen, before Abraham was, I am. I am. I mean, whoa. I think there's, there's anything here that we would do well to meditate on. It's the fact that these believers weren't really believers, were they? It kind of takes us back to the end of chapter 6. We have disciples that weren't really disciples. Jesus starts talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and they're like, peace, we're out. And they turn and no longer follow him. And Jesus looks at the 12, and he says, are you going to go too? And Peter says, where else are we going to go? And then we have the note that even among those 12, there's one that's not true disciple. Right? So it's a very interesting dynamic that... um, that's going on here. And I think the interpretive key is there in verse 31. He says, if you continue or abide or remain in my word, it's a word that speaks of permanence and endurance and faithfulness. If you continue in my word, you are really my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And I think this passage ought to compel us to stop and consider the nature of genuine belief. In light of who Jesus claims to be, there can be nothing casual about it. There is no halfway. Just like I wrote in the homework, you can't audit Jesus. Just sit in the class and soak up the information, not do anything, right? True belief is having a life-changing encounter with the living God through the person of Jesus Christ, not as you or I or our culture define him, but as he has defined himself in the scriptures, and he is quite clear about his identity, which is why they hated him. They hated him so much. As I meditated on these chapters this week, I could not stop thinking about those really, really famous words by C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. I thought they'd be the perfect words to close with. Um, Okay, it's like I didn't mark them. Here they are. I'm sure that if you've been around a while in the the Christian world, you you have heard these. But it fits so perfectly. Lewis writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. 
I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. End quote. There you go. I mean, if, if, what is the takeaway from, from John 7 and 8? He's God. And you believe him or you don't. You live in darkness or you walk in light. You have life or you die in your sin of unbelief. It, it's a very, very clear decision to be made. He is, he is the source of living water. He is the light of the world. Cling to those images this week. Let them nourish your heart and soul. I'm telling you, the water and the blood from the side of Jesus having been struck in, in, in the crucifixion. I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm never going back, you guys. I, it's just, it's beautiful to me. Stood there Sunday morning singing and just like, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And the songs are so much more beautiful because I'm thinking about it. We need images in our minds. We were created that way. Use your imagination <laughs> when you sing and when you think about Jesus. All right, I'm done. It's way over time, as always. All right. Around your tables. I want you to talk about what stood out to you. What stood out to you about today's lesson? I'm sorry, I, I really intended to walk through all of the verses. Obviously, I didn't time myself very well. But really, it's just a lot of people not understanding who Jesus is. <laughs> um, but anyway, share what stood out to you and um, just something that's been really sweet about Jesus for you lately. What's just something really sweet about your Savior that you're just um, clinging to? All right?